Good morning. Never been introduced by a video before, so that's exciting. Uh, it is a great privilege for me to be able to be here. Uh, it occurred to me that last time I spoke, I didn't give a lot of context uh, about who I am and the mission that I'm a part of. Uh, so I'm going to show another video. Uh, I came up here so it wouldn't be back-to-back -back videos with a weird transition. So now it's not awkward. Let's play another video. <laughs> In the 80s, God called me to Amsterdam. That's where I met my wife, Jody, and my two sons were born just on the edge of the red light district. And we really had a burden to reach the young people in Amsterdam who had a negative idea about God, which was pretty much everyone in the city. And so out of this burden, Jody and I and a, a small group of us would go out into the forest at night outside of Amsterdam, and we'd have these all-night prayer meetings. And we'd say, God, help us. How are we going to reach these young people who have been so hurt by this wrong idea that they have about you. So we started a, a Bible study on this old boat behind the central train station. At the same time, I felt like I was supposed to start a band as a way of going to their clubs and communicating in their language who Jesus really is. And that's how the whole ministry started. So there's the need to raise up the next generation of radical, dynamic, creative missionaries who are boldly going and communicating the truth of Jesus outside the church. And, and so um, it was at that point that we started the Steiger Mission School and started to raise up new people and develop the structure to support this true worldwide mission organization, which is all focused on reaching what we call the global youth culture. And these are young people all over the world from the Middle East, Europe, South America, and here right in the U.S., who are influenced by this worldview that, that tells them that there is no God, that they are in control, that they get to decide what's right and wrong, and they're far away from God. The reality is the vast majority of young people, especially today, have more of an apathetic or cynical or even anti-Christian perspective. And so the way in which you engage them, the assumptions that they have about the world and about life is so different. And so, so we need to reflect that when we're engaging them. So Steiger, our whole purpose is to reach those people by going where they are, understanding how they see the world and communicating the message of Jesus, the message of the cross in a language that they can understand and also equipping the local church to do the same. Uh, so I am a full-time missionary of uh, this missions organization called Steiger. Uh, it's really the family business, so I'm not sure whether I had a choice to be involved or not. Uh, but either way, that is what I do. Uh, and, and like the video alluded to, we reach and disciple the global youth culture for Jesus. Uh, and these are people that are outside of the church, roughly 17 to 35-year-olds. Uh, they're remarkably connected, like the title suggests, they're truly global uh, and this is because of the entertainment industry, because of the internet and social media. Uh, they're listening to the same music, they're watching the same movies, and they're, they're very much connected. They're very much a global community. But it's not just superficial things that connect them. It's also the way that they look at the world. And so there are two dominant thought forms, ways that they see things uh, that really shape how they view the world, and it's uh, secularism and relativism. And so secularism is this idea of death to religion, right? It's, it, it's that, that Christianity and God and the Bible, it has no bearing on their lives. It's not significant. You know, in Europe, they'll see these big, beautiful cathedrals, and they'll be dead and empty on Sunday, and that's what they'll think. You know, this is something of our parents' generation. It's something of our grandparents' generation, but it has no relevance in my life. Secularism. And then you have relativism, 
And this is the death to truth. You know, truth used to be something that we would get from outside of ourselves. You know, we would point to something like God or the Bible to decide what is right or wrong, but now it's been reduced to a preference. You know, truth is more like ice cream flavors. Whatever you like is fine. Whatever I like is fine. Nobody can settle it between us. And so this is how they view the world, secularism and relativism. Now, if I was to look at a spectrum of how people view God today, if I had such a spectrum, and I I just so happen to have such a spectrum, uh, this is kind of how people view God. They view the church. Uh, On the extreme left, you have people that are legalists. Right? They actually imposed extra-biblical morality on God. So think of modern-day Pharisees, you know, Westboro Baptists, that kind of thing, making it very difficult for people to want to know God because it's not who God is. Uh, moving along this spectrum, you have people that are nominal and friendly. You know, they're, they're not necessarily following God, but they're open to the idea. And this represents a very, very large demographic here in the U.S. especially. Uh, and then you keep moving along towards the center, and you have people that are apathetic and indifferent. And this is where the majority of the global youth culture stands today. It's not that they're following God. It's not that they care. They're not for or against. They just don't, you know, they don't think it's relevant. It's not a discussion that they think is worth having. They're indifferent to spiritual things. They're indifferent to things of God. And then, of course, on the extreme, you have people that are actually anti-God. They're hostile to the church. Think you're new atheists. You know, they see the religion, they see religion and the church as a poison that they actually need to actively oppose. What I've experienced in over 10 years of doing full-time missions is that the overwhelming majority of church efforts, the overwhelming majority of ministry efforts today are geared towards those that are nominal and friendly, right? So these are people that will come to your church events. These are people that are going to come to, you know, on Easter. They're going to be reached by conventional church uh, and ministry efforts. And and by all means, we need to be doing this. They uh, They are needing to be reached, and it's great that we're reaching them But the reality is this is a shrinking demographic. This is not where our culture is heading. Our culture is is going towards the end of the spectrum of indifferent and anti-God. And as a church, we need to be going after them. And in Steiger, that is who we feel called to reach. Those on this middle and far right end of the spectrum, those that are indifferent, those that are hostile to God. And also, I have a passion for challenging the, the church to reach them as well. And so we do this in a a bunch of different ways, Uh, but one of the main ways is we go and we establish long-term teams in urban centers all over the world, mostly made up of people from their own country, and they're doing ongoing evangelism and discipleship to the global youth culture. They're doing street evangelism, they're doing creative outreach, they're having informal Bible studies and community houses, all in the name of reaching this demographic. One of the primary ways that I'm involved is through a band called No Longer Music, Uh, Some of you might be familiar with this. It's been around for over 30 years. Uh, I've been involved for over 10. Uh, It's this very unique band that blends theater and special effects and and all sorts of creative means to tell a modern-day story of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's very, very unique. We take this outside of the church. I've been to well over 50 countries in the last 10 years, performed hundreds and hundreds of shows. I've seen thousands and thousands of people coming to Jesus through this ministry, And I just want to make a plug real quick that there's a unique opportunity coming up for you to see this show before we take it on the road this summer. Uh, So on Sunday, April 29th at 6.30 at Grace Church in Eden Prairie, not that far from here, relatively, uh, you can see this show for yourself. And I promise for those, there's some of you in this audience that have seen it, uh, they can vouch for it, but I promise it's like nothing you've ever seen before. Not only will it inspire you and challenge you, 
um, but it's a great way for you to come, for you to, be, uh, to send us off as we go to tell people about Jesus all throughout Europe and the Middle East. Uh, so we do have tickets out there in the, in the lobby area. It is $10. It's 100% proceeds towards the tour. Um, it's, it's for those in the church. Yes, people get saved every year, but it's for those in the church to send us off, so we really encourage you to check that out. What we've discovered in No Longer Music is that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. There just aren't enough Christian artists that are willing to use their gifts to boldly go outside of the church and share the gospel. And so we feel this burden to, to multiply our efforts, and to that end, we have come and live. Some of you might be familiar with this. This is our way of raising up more Christian artists who will go outside of the church to share the gospel. Uh, and we, we do this in many ways through training and mentorship, uh, but one of the ways we do it is to provoke and inspire. Uh, provoke and inspire is our voice to the world. It's our way of saying it's possible as a Christian artist to not just go the route that everybody's going. You can use your gifts. You can be bold for Jesus outside of the church, and people will be saved. Uh, and so we have in-person seminars where we gather artists and we share this message. Uh, but one of the things we have is a podcast that I really recommend that you check out. Uh, it started as a way to really challenge artists, but it's kind of uh, gradually morphed into just a, a message of how do you live as a radical follower of Jesus in culture today? Uh, and so it, it features myself, my dad, David Pierce, uh, the founder of Come and Live, and then our European director, Luke Greenwood. Uh, you can look for it anywhere. It's in all the usual places that podcasts are. But I, if you resonate with my message, I'd really recommend checking that out. And then lastly, uh, we do have some books. If you want more information about how this crazy ministry started, uh, David Pierce's book, Rock Priest, is probably the be best place to start. Uh, David and I were actually meeting, and he was saying how he just recently quoted this book at a meeting. Uh, so this is definitely something to check out. Uh, my mom, Jody Pierce, wrote a book that exposes all the lies in my dad's book. Uh, so for the, the balanced perspective, you can read both. We have revolutionary 10 principles that will empower Christian artists to change the world, and then an informal Bible study called Rat Cage. So check those out. Come and talk to us. It's just Steve and I from, he's in our band too. Uh, we'd love to talk to you. You know, I'm passionate about evangelism. You know, when I, I don't have to wonder what God put me on this earth to do. I know that, that when I'm out, when I'm telling people about Jesus, especially using art and music, I know that this is what I was created to do. But I was also given a passion for challenging the church. Because the Bible says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I don't believe that this is right. This breaks my heart. You know, what I've experienced is that just like there's a narrow road and a wide road as it relates to salvation, I also believe there's a narrow and wide road as it relates to calling. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has prepared you and I for good works to do in advance. You know, and these aren't just religious activities. You know, things we do to alleviate our religious guilt or check something off of a list. This is about having a life that is devoted to making an eternal difference. That's what you were created for. But what I've experienced is though God has this calling on your life, that doesn't necessarily mean you will live this out. There's a lot of reasons there's a lot of reasons you won't take the narrow road. Maybe, maybe it's because you lack faith. You know, God at one point put a burden on your heart, put a dream in your heart to reach people, to make a difference for him, but you wondered, how is it going to work? God, I'm busy. I have a job. I have a family. I don't know how I'm going to be able to do this. You lacked faith. You didn't understand that God could do it through you. Or maybe you had a dream, but you became seduced by worldly things. You know, success and materialism and comfort in time choked out this calling that God had on your life. 
But there's another enemy of impact that I want to talk about this morning that I think is very subtle and very deceptive, and it's found in Mark 4, verse 18 and 19 in the parable of the seed and the sower. Let me read that for us. It says this, Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke out the word, making it unfruitful. I want to focus this morning on these other things, right? Because we already looked at the worries of this world, right? Lack of faith, you worry how it's going to work, so you shrink back. And the deceitfulness of wealth is, again, fairly obvious. But what about this desire for other things? I mean, it's mentioned as one of the three main reasons why you will not be fruitful. So clearly it's important, and yet it's presented in such banal terms. Other things. Not evil things. You know, not selfish things, just other things. I think this is significant because it's often the ordinary things. The conventional things. The things people will even say are good. That will rob you of the great and significant calling that God has on your life. You know, we are often unfruitful, unfruitful because we take the narrow road calling that God has for us, the radical obedience that he wants for us, and we trade it for something wide, something acceptable, something conventional, something normal, and that makes all the difference. So what do I mean? Well, I think Christians are making two major trades today. We're making two major trades, and the consequences are enormous. The first trade is this. We're trading radical obedience for convention and comfort. God calls us to radical obedience. Shouldn't even be radical. God calls us to obedience, and instead we trade it for convention and comfort. In Luke 9, 57 through 62, Jesus gives us this insight into what it costs to follow him through these series of exchanges that he has. It starts like this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This would have been a very shocking statement. I mean, you got to remember that the Jews were expecting a conquering king. You know, he was going to come and overthrow the Romans and bring in this period of glory, restore Jerusalem to its, its former glory, restore Israel. And so then when Jesus said, there are many days when I don't even have a place to sleep, this would have been very disappointing. This is not the king they were expecting. The idea is this, God cares about your physical needs. Right? He knows you need a place to sleep, and you need food, you need clothes. He knows about these basic things, but following Jesus is not about your comfort. And if we want to make a difference, if we truly want to make a difference, our obedience to him needs to extend beyond having all of our physical needs met. And we live in a culture that is absolutely obsessed with our physical needs. You know, the global youth culture are obsessed about what the, the things they own. Their identities are wrapped up in what they have. It's about the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the phones they have. It's, it's all about consumption. Corporations are all too happy to feed into this, to perpetuate this cycle. They actually plan things to fail, planned obsolescence. Every product you own is designed to become irrelevant and outdated as soon as possible, so you will no need to go get more. You, know, you may not even be aware of it or conscious of it, but we live in a culture where the line between need and want has become so blurred. We impose these impossible standards of living on ourselves. We, 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 the consequences are devastating. I mean, for those of us that choose to have families, we often sacrifice being with them to maintain our lifestyles. 
Or consider this phrase, starter homes. When most of the world doesn't know where its next meal is coming from, when most of the world is wondering how it's going to survive, we have starter homes. This ludicrous concept that that first house that you buy, that's not good enough. You need to move up and move on and quickly because after all, it's just a starter home. The sad irony is that we've bought into this mentality despite not even having the money to do so and we are in massive debt. As of the second quarter of 2017, we had $784 billion of credit card debt in this country. It's probably worse by now. That's nothing of the $8.6 trillion of mortgage debt, $1.1 trillion of car loans, and $1.3 trillion of student debt. It's madness. We're buying and we're buying and we're doing it at such a rate we can't even fit it into our houses. Studies show that the average home size in the U.S. has doubled in the last 50 years, and yet still one of the largest growing industries in this country are storage units. We have more than 500,000 storage unit facilities in this country. That's more than Starbucks. You know, one of the greatest enemies of impact in your life is that in the name of comfort, and in the name of security, in the name of what's normal, you're going to allow stuff to choke out the calling God has on your life. Our lives have become so consumed in consumption, it chokes out our relationship with God and the, the, the life he desires for us to have. And in this biblical example, Jesus makes it very, very clear that following him is not about your comfort. It's not about doing what everyone else does. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. Why should we expect it to be any different for us? The passage goes on. He said, To another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. In this example, the man wants to follow Jesus, I believe. He genuinely does, but he wants to do so in his own timing. And he seems to have a pretty decent excuse, right? Let me go bury my dad. Now, biblical scholars disagree. Was his dad actually dead? Was he dying? Was he just nearing the stage of this life? They don't really know But this was the excuse that he offered to Jesus, and Jesus' reaction is, no, it's now or never. And it seems kind of harsh, right? At first glance, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty intense, Jesus, but how often do we say we want to make a difference? How often does God break our hearts, put a burden on our hearts, compel us to act, and we're going to do it? But then we say these two words, but first... God, yes, I'm going to respond. Yes, I know you've put this calling on my life, but first... But first, I have these goals I want to accomplish. But first, let me get my business in order. But first, let me get my finances where I want to be. But first, let me get married. But first, following God is about saying, I will go, and I will go now. And you don't have to go anywhere physically. There's a step of obedience for you right here where you are. And what I've learned is you'll never run out of but first. You'll be saying but first until it's all over. If we want to have a life that makes an eternal difference, it's about saying, I will go, and I will go now. The passage goes on. Still another man said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. In this example, the man uses his family, or more broadly, the season of life that he is in, to not follow Jesus in a radical way. But following Jesus requires a single-mindedness. The only way to plow straight is to look at the ground ahead, and family is a great thing. I have a two-year-old, I have a daughter on the way, I love my family. But even they cannot come first 
Even they must be put at the altar of obedience to God. And I'm not saying that I neglect my family. God will never ask you to do something that contradicts his character. But rather it's about not using your family or the season of life you're in as an excuse to not follow Jesus in a radical way. God, I'm too young. God, I'm too old. God, I, I'm, I'm single. I want to get married. God, I'm married. I can't be used now. God, I want kids. God, I have kids. Using the season of life we're in as a reason to not obey when he says go. So many followers of Jesus fail the test of the seasons. I've seen it. You know, guys that come on our mission, girls that come on our mission, they're radical. They'll do anything. They'll leave anything when they have nothing to lose. Right? Then they get married and many of them drop out. Now it's time to be reasonable. Some survive, but then they have kids. This is the biggest hurdle. Will I be radical now? Will I be faithful now? You know, and as someone who grew up in a ministry family, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that my parents didn't say, you know, all that crazy stuff in Amsterdam, that was cool. But we got kids now. Right? We have to be responsible. And people were telling him that. And there were many people that were with them in those early days that packed up and went home and are filled with regret. And I'm so grateful that my parents said, no, if God can call us, he can call them. If God can provide for us, he can provide for them. And because of their obedience, I got to see faith in action. I got to see obedience in practice. I'm so grateful that my parents didn't choose to be responsible, reasonable, and conventional, but said, no, God can provide. God still calls. Having a life that produces much fruit means believing that God is the same in all seasons. That he still says provide no matter what stage of life you're in. That he still says follow me in a radical way no matter what season of life you're in. There's no retirement with Jesus. There's no retirement. I don't know how long God's going to give me. I don't know the physical strength I will have. But as long as he does, I will continue to follow him in this way. First major trade Christians are making today is radical obedience for comfort. The second trade is truth for acceptance. You know, today you hear it said the cross is love. But the reality is if you do not define what love is, what a meaningless statement. Because in our culture, love is cheap. Even our language fails to really capture what love is. I can love a team and a food and my, and a, my, my wife all using the same word. In our culture, love is really lust. It's cheap. And yet I've seen many Christians trade the clear gospel message for a simple cliche message about love or social issues or life transformation. Why? Well, I think for many Christians, they're aware of the secularism. They're aware of the relativism. And they're thinking the gospel is just too incongruent. It's too against the grain. It's too abrasive. This isn't going to work. It's too old school. It's too fundamental. And so they defer to easier messages more palatable messages, more popular messages, and they trade truth for acceptance. This mentality has paved the way for a Christian culture that will focus on anything but Jesus. And you especially see this in the art scene today among Christians. We'll talk about anything. We'll sing about anything. We'll make videos about anything, just not Jesus. You know, today it's really more about life transformation or inspirational testimonies. We love to hear about alcoholics and drug addicts that no longer use and believe me, when you come to Jesus, he changes you, and we should celebrate that. But God is not just another approach to behavior modification. The gospel doesn't take dirty people, doesn't take 
bad people and make them good. He takes dead people and makes them alive. And that is why we follow Jesus. That is what makes him different than every other world religion. People don't need another self-help life improvement plan. They need to be made alive. They need to be forgiven. And we've been selling people short by limiting Jesus to a program for behavioral change, a cheap pop culture Oprah Christianity that demands nothing and changes nobody. This is not who we serve. You know, or maybe it's about fulfilling your dreams, you know? It's the subtle prosperity gospel. We wouldn't call it that, but that's really what it is. I'm in a contract with God. If I go to church, if I do good things, he'll keep me happy and healthy and give me what I want. But Jesus is not a genie that you go to with a list of requests. He's not a cute cultural attachment that makes our life easy. He is the king. And we bow before him and we say, whatever you want, wherever you want me to go, I surrender to you. You know, I believe many Christians have traded the huge impact that God desires for them to have in their families, in their workplaces, in their schools, in their neighborhoods, because we have been trading the truth of the gospel for nice messages, popular messages, palatable messages. You know, my dad was invited to speak by a Christian youth worker for this big youth event, all these non-Christian kids. And before my dad got up to speak, the Christian youth worker said, hey, can you give a positive message, not an evangelistic one? Seems funny, but this is what's happening in our culture today. And the truth is, the gospel has never been easy to share. It's always been foolish. 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified as stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The gospel has always been hard to share. It's always been difficult. And if we're not doing it, it's because we lack courage, we're unwilling to look foolish, or we don't really believe it's what people need. And until we allow our pride to die, until I allow my pride to die, until I have a revelation of the power of the cross to save, and only the power of the cross to save, of course, I'm going to choose easier messages. I'm going to choose messages that don't rock the boat, that don't go against the stream, that keep me popular and accepted. We make it so difficult. We make it so complicated. And yet it's the simple power of the gospel that changes lives. I was on tour with No Longer Music in Brazil a month ago. It's an incredible tour, God just moving in power, and we often have these follow-up events after our concerts. So we invite people to respond, people give their lives to Jesus. The next night we say, hey, if you want to learn more, come to a follow-up event. And so that day we were going to be having a follow-up event, and on the way we got in this crazy bus crash. It's a miracle we survived, honestly. That's a totally different story, but the point is we get, we're on our way to this follow-up event, and I'm asking our promoter, where is it? Because normally it's in a church or a cafe or whatever, and he's like, well, it's on this big rock overlooking this beach in Rio de Janeiro, and every night people gather, locals and tourists, and they're there to celebrate the sun. It's like this pagan ritual. We're going to be doing our follow-up event there. It was a little unusual, and I thought, okay, that's fine. So we get there, and I'm asking him, what's going to happen? How's the program going to work? And he's like, okay, well, we're just going to play some acoustic songs, and then you're just going to preach. I'm like, what? You normally have this big show, and that we're presenting the gospel theatrically, and it's this, all these tools and all of these flashy things, and I'm just going to have to get up there and preach, and I'm feeling totally inadequate. I'm feeling vulnerable, having barely survived this bus crash. I'm just still having fiberglass burning my skin feeling totally inadequate, totally foolish. Hundreds of people gather, the music stops, and then I just am supposed to preach. And I'm thinking, God, I don't have what it takes. I don't have anything cool to say. What do I do? And I said like he felt, I felt like he said to me, Ben, you need to tell them. 
And so I said, okay, I don't care how I feel. I said, you know, I know you're here to celebrate the sun, but that is not what you were created for. You were created to celebrate the one who made the sun. You're not just some explosion in the sky. You're not some accident, some result of just some product of chance. You were created by a God who loves you, who wants to know you, who wants to fill that emptiness and forgive you for the bad things that you've done. And I shared the gospel. And I said, if you want to know who Jesus is, raise your hand. And people all over the place were raising their hands. And for an hour, we prayed with people who received Jesus right on this rock overlooking a beach in Rio de Janeiro. But it was a fight. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to look foolish. And that is what I was made for. When I went home that night, I was like, yes, God, this is why I'm here. This is why you're here. Not to accumulate things and grow old and die, but to make an eternal difference. But we need to not trade the truth for acceptance. Let me just close with this. In Matthew 25, 14 through 30, Jesus tells a powerful illustration of a master with four servants, and he gives them all talents. And three out of the four, they invest it wisely and make, produce a return, but one out of the four does not. We're not given a whole lot of reasons why, but the master is very upset. He calls him a wicked, lazy servant. Here's the big idea. If you have a house, if you drove here, if you have food to eat, if you have a phone in your pocket, you are in an elite category of the world. So am I. We have been given so much. What will we do with the opportunities that we've been given? And that's just material. What about spiritual? You know the truth. You know how many people do not know the truth. You know how many people have never been told, who are being deceived, who are being destroyed by the lies of the world. We have the truth. What will we do with it? What will we do with the opportunities that we have? This is not about making you feel guilty. This is an appeal to not waste your life. You are not created to accumulate possessions and die. You were created to make an eternal difference. But we need to stop trading the radical calling that God has for us for comfort, for the normal life, for the ordinary things that the world, even the Christian world, will say, yeah, that's okay. Those are good things, but they're not great things. They're not extraordinary things, and they're certainly not the thing that God has created you for. And then we need to stop trading the truth, the plain foolish, powerful truth of the gospel for nice messages that everyone will applaud but will change nothing. We need God's mercy. I need God's mercy in both of these ways every day. But this is the appeal. This is what God has called us to. This is what it means to be the church. You are created to make an eternal difference and Jesus is calling you. Will you count the cost? Will you follow him? Well, you say, no, Lord, but first. Lord, I got to bury my dad. Lord, I got a family. Will you choose comfort? Will you choose acceptance? Will you say, no, I will, ch- I will take the radical road that you have for me. I need your help, but if you'll help me, I'll go. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for your mercy because every day I fail in both of these ways. God, and following you is not about doing everything perfectly, Lord, but it is about surrender. It is about surrender, Lord. God, and I believe maybe there are people here 
who know deep down they're not surrendered. Maybe even not fully to you, let alone the calling you have for their lives. And if, if there are people here in that place, Jesus, I pray that they would, you would meet them there. You don't condemn us, but you do call us. And I pray that whatever we've been holding on to, whatever worlds we've been living in, I pray that we'd surrender that all, fall at your feet, and say, Jesus, use my life to make a difference. I don't want to waste my life. The world is on fire. People are dying, and the church needs to be out there telling people the truth. Use us, Jesus, not because of us, but because of you and your great mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.